proto-cells that Kate Adamala and others would like to build are, are going to be s- super feeble. I mean, they're going to be barely holding it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd be much more worried about, you know, uh, Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that, that causes bubonic plague mm-hmm. or, you know, smallpox, things like that. Like things that are the product of millions and billions evolution. of years of evolution. That's right. Hello and welcome to episode number 207, Armin Show Podcast. We have a wonderful guest here that I found out about first from his book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. It's a book about heredity, how through DNA and genes we can see history, people, history through people. And the author of that book is Carl Zimmer. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is wonderful. Now, you have written that book along with, in total, 13 books, I believe, which is wonderful. And first, how did you get to where you are in your career, separate from the books, as a science writer? I uh, first got into science writing uh, working at Discover Magazine. <clears throat> I got a job there as a assistant copy editor. Uh, just proofreading and such. And then um, after a while, uh, I started fact-checking and then got to write short pieces and then got to write longer pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was there about uh, 10 years all told. I ended up as a senior editor. And then after that, I um, headed off to uh, do my own writing to work on books and other projects. That's wonderful. Now, in your writings, you have focused on evolution, parasites, and the brain, why that category versus who knows some sort of physics or dark matter or something? Well, when I was working at Discover, I found that uh, biology. I just found the most interesting of all the different fields I was uh, assigned to cover. Mm-hmm. There was always something new and and incredibly surprising, uh, and so uh, you know I just <clears throat> just got interested in in understanding biology better. I just wanted to to learn about all the different uh, kinds of research that people were doing. And, uh, you know, you just sort of dive into one topic or another or another. I mean, I would say, I guess, that evolution is sort of the big overarching uh, subject, Mm -hmm. but that's simply because, you know, evolution is the foundation of biology. And so in order to understand why things are the way they are, you have to look into how they got that way. Mm -hmm. Now, Specifically, recently, you have created a podcast called What is Life, which is questioning how do we define life? And you went and spoke with a variety of people about the topic, including philosophers, physicists, astrobiologists, and a variety of perspectives came out from that. Before I specifically go into some of them, what are some um, overarching items you uh, noted from... Uh, speaking with these individuals and maybe themes that came up? Well, you know, we were um, exploring um, a lot of these, you know, big fundamental questions about life. How do you even define it? Mm -hmm. Um, How did it begin? Uh, What forms could it possibly take? Why does it exist? 
and you know what's really interesting to me is that you know these are these are questions that uh, people have been asking for for a number of decades now, and um, they're they're really moving in some fascinating directions in terms of uh, actual uh, research. You know, you can you can test these ideas in more and more powerful ways, and and in lots of uh, different ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it's it's fun to talk about these things uh, in the abstract, but it's even more fun to talk about the the experiments or observations that people are carrying out to to explore those ideas and see well which ones actually work better than others. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, as a somewhat of a description for the listeners, there, for example, with the philosopher on episode one. He even asked if what is life could be the wrong question, looking at it from a different perspective. Now, in relation to, I like these on-the-spot type of questions, um, your own writings, has there ever been a time where you felt like uh, you were focusing on one type of question or category and then something else pulled you toward that and you ended up focusing on that when you saw the trends were toward that or you were more curious about that? Is there anything that jumps out in that category? Um, like yeah, I, yeah, well, I, I um, <clears throat> when I was uh, writing about evolution initially, mm-hmm. um, I was focused a lot on, on fossils, on studies of living animals and plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the you know people would say like oh but it's all about dna and i would say well yeah but you know nobody can really say very much about what's going on with the dna at all mm-hmm. so let's let's look at where you know the the richest evidence is you know so if you want to know how did whales evolve from land mammals mm-hmm. look at these incredible fossils that we have right but um you know that you know that was the 1990s <laughs> and uh <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, starting in the 21st century, uh, things uh, having to do with DNA in, in science just uh, blew up in a way that I really don't think anybody had anticipated. Um, and it's not just trendiness. It's just there's there's uh, a colossal amount of data that has come out and act- some actual insights um, th- into evolution that you just wouldn't get otherwise so you know so scientists can can uh you know for one thing they can look at dna and they can um you know they can confirm the with the the fossils we're suggesting that mm-hmm. you know whale let's take whales that whales are uh mammals and not just any mammals they're uh they're closely related to hippopotamuses and cows and camels uh and uh, then you can zero in even further and say, okay, well, what were some of the genetic changes that let a mammal live in the water? Mm-hmm. And you can look for genes that have experienced natural selection. You can look at genes that just shut down completely because they got in the way of being in the water and so on. So I, I would say, you know, my shift has de- – my big shift in my career has definitely been to the molecular um, just because – there's so much that's happening there. Right. That makes sense. That is a pretty big shift. And then, yes, sometimes there is like, why don't you focus on this as the main thing? But actually, uh, there's something underneath that, which physics 
I was talking about this recently, undercuts, not undercuts, but is uh, below biology in terms of, like it, like you mentioned in the episode number, let's see, it is the one about entropy, uh, five with Jeremy England, where mm-hmm. he talked about life as a way for matter to dissipate energy and uh, the concept of entropy. I used to talk about entropy a lot as it uh, its importance in everything we do. I kind of see people connection as an energy transfer. And um, one of the episodes I had talked with a professor about how maybe even a career is a minimization of energy because you get into the thing that uh, it fits you. Yeah. Like it's a lower entropy state. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the second episode, you talked with an astrobiologist and she had said that aliens might be different from us and maybe not introduce themselves to us. Um, we can look at them in a way that is not so uh, that they would be just like us communicating with them. What other items uh, of note did you take from speaking with Sarah Walker? Well, what was interesting uh, talking to Sarah Walker is, you know, is that she is this, um, you know, someone who's trained as a physicist who has made this shift into becoming an astrobiologist. And so um, she has this really interesting perspective um, because she's, she wants, you know, she has this goal. She wants to help in the search for life in the universe. Um, and, she is sort of stepping back and, you know, asking one of these big questions, <clears throat> you know, what is it we're looking for? Uh, and, you know, we, you know, you might sort of assume that, you know, alien life would be easy <clears throat> to find, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's really interesting talking to her and, and sort of thinking like, well, no, actually, like, why should you assume that? I mean, it's probably not going to be like in the movies. <laughs> you know, right. You're not going to have these sort of metallic bipedal things coming off of a ship and like waving at us. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, <clears throat> what we might be doing is uh, using uh, space telescopes to look at planets uh, orbiting other stars mm-hmm. and trying to figure out if there is life on there. And then, you know, you're not so much trying to, you know, listen to, you know, messages from aliens. You're just trying to <clears throat> detect the signature of, of alien life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they're like shooting out TV broadcasts, then, <laughs> you know, that, that, that could help. But, you know, with TV broadcasts, we're not here on Earth for the first, you know, four billion whatever years uh, of life on Earth. So right. what would people have done if they were looking at Earth? Right. Um, So some people have suggested, well, you know, here on Earth, we have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, which is kind of odd, and have suggested, well, maybe that's a signature of life. Um, That's actually been brought into question. You know, maybe there are ways to get a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere without life. Mm -hmm. And so she's been looking at other signatures. You know, maybe there are, um, you know, combinations of molecules that can show you that there is a network of living things um, on a planet, that there's a biosphere there. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe you know, regardless of the specifics of, you know, what, what your life forms are made up of, mm-hmm. maybe, that, maybe, maybe that signature of that network is the same, you know, whatever planet you're looking at. So, you know, that was that was a really interesting way to think about uh to to think about the search for aliens. Mhm. 
that makes sense they could be communicating with some sort of like gravit gravitational pull for all we know and then we would have to just note that with our detection systems as much as possible yeah you know i mean i think that uh you know it, there's not there's nothing wrong with look we're with you know trying to look for communications from aliens mm -hmm. um but you know we can't guarantee that we're going to understand it if we get these signals um and you know if if we are waiting for you know bacteria to talk to us we'll be waiting a long time <laughs> but you know maybe there are ways of being able to see that there's a planet covered in bacteria or something like sponges or whatever you know maybe there's a way for us to figure that out just by looking at the planet mm -hmm. one thing i note there like an analogy is that somebody is at one point in their life and then if they meet somebody at a different point in their life even though at separate points they would have meshed well at those points they don't meet each other's needs and so they just walk by each other and that might be similar to how our timing is off of a timing of another distant species yeah yeah you know there there's a you know uh you know people have wondered why you know we have not actually encountered any um intelligent life in particular mm -hmm. uh and you know some people have said like well you know maybe maybe once you sort of um once a planet produces intelligent life mm -hmm. it either blows itself up <laughs> right. or it, it just sort of shoots off into a kind of you know a, a, a plane of existence that you know that we can't even comprehend and so mm -hmm. you know there there may not be much intelligent life in the universe at our level just because that level you you aren't in this level for very long right <laughs> either for good reasons or bad reasons that's right. just uh, you know one interesting idea people have had mm -hmm. i've uh, discussed a little bit about that the filter kind of concept that's a cool one now um in an episode i had with uh charles cockle he's an astrobiologist and he had talked about in his book how uh life is likely to be uh, similar to us in certain ways. And then in episode six of What is Life, your podcast, Stephen Benner had talked about how we could leave open the possibility that life doesn't look like us with DNA and RNA and a carbon base. And that kind of relates to what you were just uh, describing. It can be a different form. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we we look around, uh, you know, at... at life on earth mm -hmm. and you know you can imagine your favorite documentary you know david attborough whatever mm -hmm. like there's always the big montage of all the variety of life forms you know so you see a shark and then a redwood and then a frog and you think wow like life is so strange and takes so many different forms mm -hmm. and you know it's certainly true that there are you know many millions of species um uh, on earth and we've only counted a tiny fraction of them but um but looked at from another perspective life on earth is really boring um it's all it's all dna based you know the only exception would be our viruses that use rna which is really you know a variation on dna when you get down to it so um yeah so that's it uh, and and uh you know there are different different ways to to build DNA and proteins. You know, you can use different kinds of metabolism, but that's all. They're all pretty pretty similar to each other, and they all have that same you know function of of 
building more DNA, more proteins, and more cells, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Stephen Benner uh, has been interested for a very long time in whether that boringness uh, means anything. Like, is that does that mean that there's no other way to have life? Mm-hmm. You know, like why didn't we have multiple origins of different kinds of life on Earth? Right. You know, why don't why don't we have weird life here on earth and is there is there a re, is, is there a constraint you know is it just that you can't make life any other way mm-hmm. um and for that question you know you really want to like ideally you know you'd want to go off to other planets and moons and check them out and and see if you find any life and if you find life is it like us and you know there are in in that episode of the podcast, we talk about you know some of the reasons that you don't you shouldn't assume that that uh, life couldn't take other forms. I mean, just basic chemistry suggests to you that you could get things that we would call alive mm-hmm. from different kinds of chemistry. Um, and so it would be amazing to be able to find that. Right. One thing I noted was that different kinds of chemistry. Uh, there was a key point in one of the episodes, I believe, that it is relevant to check if life can be formed without you agitating the soup of it because there's the idea that if you heat it up or if you do something certain to a mix that okay life can form from it or rna can come out or amino acids but a lot of those involve some sort of agitation that wouldn't have casually happened through evolution that so yeah, the you know there are these questions about how life could, how life originated, and um, you know they generally like I mean in terms of like you know that agitation you're talking about mm-hmm. I mean you know it on a on a on an act geologically active planet that's not a big problem you know like there are going to be lots of places on a right. planet that where you you got a lot of energy inside the planet you got you know maybe plague tectonics are starting off and Mm -hmm. you're going to have these places like hydrothermal vents where there is a a lot of energy moving around a lot of chemistry happening and uh you know there's a lot of evidence suggesting that in places like that you can start to get chemistry converging more and more on what you need for life and so that raises a another question which is like well we're looking for life elsewhere in the universe um what kind of planet could uh provide the 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 conditions where you could get the chemistry Mm -hmm. to get life going um and you know but some people have speculated that you know the icy moons out in our you know further reaches of our solar system around Jupiter or Saturn, even they might have enough energy uh, to to provide that environment to, to get life started. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, that's why we need to go there right. and check it out and see if that, if that is, in fact, the case. Mm-hmm. I liked that in your uh, last episode of that set with Kate Adamala, a chemist at University of Minnesota, that you talked about now this is discussed, what is life then? She is trying to build uh, a synthetic cell from scratch. That is a large maneuver in her protobiology lab. Uh, what notes did you take from said practice? Well, it is interesting to 
think about this synthetic biology research actually as being um, a way of addressing um, what is life and how did life begin. Um, people think of synthetic life as being um, something where, you know, it's it's like technology, like you want to build cells to do some particular thing, you know, and, and, and in a way that sort of maybe that's why it frightens people because I think that, well, if you create cells from scratch, there'll be these super scary monsters that you can unleash on the world. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but actually, you know, the fact is that um, the kinds of thing, kinds of proto cells that Kate Adamala and others would like to build are, are going to be super feeble. I mean, they're going to be just really, uh, barely holding it together mm -hmm. um so you know you, you would be you'd be much more worried about you know uh yersinia pestis the bacteria that that causes bubonic plague mm -hmm. or you know smallpox things like that like things that are the product of millions and billions evolution. of years of evolution that's right right what they're trying to do is they're trying to say like okay like if we understand the the really basic principles of life, mm -hmm. then we, sh we should be able to replicate that with engineering um, just to get something, you know, barely off the ground. <clears throat> um, we can't do that yet. I mean, and that's that's a pretty, that in itself is pretty profound. I mean, for all our scientific advances, we cannot build a cell from scratch that will then grow, replicate, and evolve. We can't do that yet. Right. Uh, but people are getting towards that goal they're taking steps and more steps and more steps you know it's a, now you know you start to wonder well how many steps are there like i right. don't know but um but in any case um you know once once that once they do make this synthetic cell um you know what the reason that will be important will have will have less to do with applications or technology and have more to do with that basic fundamental question of what is life Right. I've noticed that whenever there's a item you create it but it has not gone through hundreds of iterations so it stands no chance against something and we've described I recently was talking about this how everything we look at is the top form of what that would have been so if we see a certain animal or a computing system or certain type of architecture that's the one that won out versus a lot of attempts that broke or a bridge fell or whatever it is. So it's good to keep note of that. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting here is that, as in so many cases, Charles Darwin was thinking so far ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. um, there was a letter that he wrote um, to a friend where he, uh, it's, it's, it's a letter where he starts to speculate about the origin of life, and mm -hmm. he uses this famous phrase about a warm little pond. Mm -hmm. But you know, sometimes people um, kind of misunderstand what the letter was really about. So what, what Darwin was talking about was say, he was saying – People were starting – there was this debate about spontaneous generation. Mm -hmm. In other words, could life just Happen. come together from scratch? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he had been thinking about the origin of, of life, period. And, um, <clears throat> and then he, he wrote to his friend. He said, well – he was skeptical that you could have spontaneous generation now um, 
in, in on a world where there is already life. Yeah, and and the way he put it was that you know if, even if you had a warm little pond with all the right chemistry, um, just and anything that could get off the ground there would just get wiped out. You know mm-hmm. because because we're on this planet that's just full of life and everything's eating each other and and competing for resources. Mm-hmm. And so um, so he was very skeptical that spontaneous generation would would matter very much. To, to life on Earth. And it's interesting to think about now that you have scientists who are trying to build life. And, um, you know, the fact is that if you were to toss one of these, you know, protocells out into, uh, you know, a real environment, you know, the soil mm-hmm. or a or a pond, uh, they would just get just shredded <laughs> immediately. You know, some predatory protozoan would come along and be like, hello, right. and just gulp, and that would right. be it. You know, all over. Right. They would have no chance. Iterations are a big deal. I look at this in every uh, category, whether it's business or uh, education or whatever category, health, that if something is not iterative and improving, it just gets run over. It has no chance. There's no. You have to adapt to the current moment, and whoever is closest to evolution is good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the the on the other hand, I mean, I should I should say that. For a lot of people, uh, the part of their working definition of life is that something has to have the capacity for evolution. Mm-hmm. So if Kate Adelmala can make a protocell that really would everyone would agree is alive, mm-hmm. then um, you could start uh, basically um, running it through evolution. And you could uh, just, uh, you know, have it... Um, give it the opportunity to adapt to the challenges of survival and you could, you know, uh, create a more and more complicated environment in the lab and try to push it to, to evolve more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now, you know, scientists do do this with yeast and E. coli and so on in, in labs and they get some really fascinating results. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know who knows like may, maybe maybe if somebody set up a lab where they had a grant to, to do an experiment for 5000 years they could right. get something really cool out of there who knows right something well, that would be robust enough to be able to handle life on the outside world mhm that makes me think of uh it's similar to like the deep mind or alpha go that plays chess 58000 times or millions of times against itself and has recently beat people, and then StarCraft Two recently a, a computer game. Uh, same thing, maybe with higher level simulations, we could bypass the time constraint and then have uh, a more robust cell in that category. Maybe that'd be cool. One thing I liked also uh, the perspective from uh, in the episode with Jim Cleaves at the Early Life Science Institute of Tokyo. He was saying that. No one thought of this question 200 years ago about where life comes from. And we see that often that something right now, we're not even thinking of it. And it is the important thing. Um, How much did you note perspective in that episode? Well, I think that this is is something that's uh, 
a lesson that I notice again and again is that you know when we when we are in the moment and thinking about the big questions that really consume us, mm-hmm. uh, we can't assume that that these things have always been on people's mind um, forever. Oh, that's good. Or, re- or even until very recently. Um, so in my book, she has her mother's laugh. I look at a similar situation with heredity, where mm-hmm. two hundred years ago. The question of heredity, the way we think about heredity, just did not exist. I mean, there were people who were doing, you know, were breeding sheep and and so on. And but um, really, uh, it was Charles Darwin and and some other people in the mid 1800s who formulated heredity as a biological question. And you know, now you know we all think about heredity in terms of like you know what we inherited from our parents, and we go try to take a 23andMe test to figure that out and mm-hmm. so on. Like That's how we think about things. But if you look back, 200 years ago, people didn't really think that way. And the same is true for the origin of life. How did life begin? Um, you know, we, we have this visual uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, sort of paradigm, this, 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 this image in our heads of this rocky volcanic early earth and and these you know slimy little you know ponds or or, or vents where proto-life is is forming and wondering exactly how that happened mm-hmm. um people just didn't think that way in the 1700s it, it it they didn't you know in a way you know they partly was that they didn't know enough about chemistry in in biology to even think about life as as being built up from from these chemical units mm-hmm. um, and ironically though um, y- you know sometimes it takes um, an active imagination to push people to think about these new questions um, and in the case of the origin of life and what is life uh, actually the the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley was was really uh, very influential um, you know, because oh. you know she she was fascinated by experiments at the time where people were asking well you know is electricity the the essence of life you know they were they were puzzling about this and trying to run electric current through frog legs and things like that mm-hmm. and so that got her thinking like well what does it mean for something to be alive and and could could you through science like animate something or 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 you know could you put pieces of cadaver parts together and bring it back to life what would that be like and and you know should you even do it um that actually was really that actually like helped to spur the whole study of of the origin of life itself right i always take heavy note of that anybody who uh, supports or is doing like risk taking leaps or checking options that there's a cost at the time because the response from others is what is this or that doesn't make sense or why would you do such a thing but Without those individuals, there's no variation to the future because it would just be a procedural path, I think. Yeah, and, and you know, with the origin of life, I mean, it has been, uh, and, and just asking what is life, um, 
You know, it's such a fundamental, profound question, and yet it's always been kind of at the fringes of biology. Just, I don't mean the fringy in, in like, like crazy, but right, right. I just mean that it's just, it's the sort of, the sort of questions that are they're that just too big for practicing biologists to say, oh yeah, I'm going to make my career on that. Right. You know, you'd rather say like, okay, I'm going to focus on mitochondria or something. Mitochondria or feathers <laughs> or you know something manageable. Right. Um, and uh, so you know, it really you know the the study of the original life and and asking these big questions about what is life has has fallen to uh, to to what I would say, you know, very brave people. You know, someone like Stanley Miller who says, like, I'm going to run a spark through this flask and see what kind of chemicals I get. Right. Um, or, you know, uh, Schrodinger who, like, writes a book, What is Life? Um, you know, a physicist who just just tries to think about about life from first principles in terms as a physicist um it's kind of you know it's a crazy thing to do and yet that book what is life um you know remains uh a classic uh many decades after it was written just curious is your podcast a name based on that or was it just the same concept no, I, I mean, I, I yes, I'm totally stealing from, from, from the title. Absolutely, it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful way to to give a book a title, and it really, it just, you know, it's three words that just just encapsulate that that fascination we have right. with the fact that we are alive and that other things are alive, and and that it's really hard to figure out what makes that uh, condition special, right, uh, compared to everything else in the universe. One thing you had mentioned in your book, she has her mother's laugh. Now, when I see this book, I think of it like a, a package. I only think of recent books uh, like a package like this, like this one and Robert Sapolsky's Behave, which was interesting because on the back of your book, Robert Sapolsky said he loved your book. So that's kind of cool to see the connection there. Uh, two things about it. One is how did you um, view it before you were writing it to pr progress through time in DNA and genes? And then... The second one is, do you view it as one of your package books or do you view it similarly to your other books? Well, I mean, it's a real, uh, it was a real honor to, to, uh, for Robert Sapolsky to, to give an endorsement of the book like that. Cause mm -hmm. I'm a big admirer of his work and have been ever since back in my discover days when, oh. uh, when he was, uh, writing, starting to write books. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, it it was i would say that it was a book that you know gave me the opportunity to reach out to a lot of different areas that i had been reporting on and exploring in recent years and trying to bring them together into one sort of coherent story mm -hmm. um because you know i mean i think you know heredity is is one of those big things like like life where you know it it is incredibly important and yet you know when we think about it and what it means and why it's important to us uh it it, it can be really hard to answer that uh in, in a clear way and um you know and you know heredity uh to understand heredity you know we need to understand dna but we need to understand a lot more than that uh and you know heredity is 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 bigger than than just genes and that's another you know uh, goal i had in writing the book is to to get people to think 
think big about heredity. You know, heredity is important, but it's even more important uh, than we realize because it encompasses all sorts of things. It encompasses our culture um, and it encompasses traditions and it, and it encompasses, you know, sort of a continuity in life, not just not just with replicating genes, but maybe a sort of a molecular continuity. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 it's, it's kind of along the lines, you know, of asking, well, what is life? I'm trying to answer this question, what is heredity? Right. I noticed that I like the way it went from uh, at the beginning of the book, it described some uh, families and family trees that passed on and why and why not. And then it went into details later about like a gene, a GNAQ or AKT3. And then, but the the point uh, made through that uh, path from that to that is showing that we as people are altering this code through our decisions and movements now, whereas a long time ago, and maybe with animals, it was just happening more so. We're more aware of it, and our consciousness is almost traveling into our genes. Yeah. Well, we certainly are. Are you know, as we understand how genes get passed down from one generation to the next, um, we're also understanding how genes work. Uh, you know, at a deeper level, and at the same time, we're learning how to manipulate genes mm-hmm. and potentially to do it in a way that gets passed down from one generation to the next. And so, you know, this is something that is happening a lot uh, with plants, animals, microbes that we are harnessing for our, our own benefit. Um, mm-hmm. But and, you know, the the ethical uh, line that we're now dancing around is whether it's OK to do that with humans. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we've just had a case in China where twins were born who had been genetically uh, engineered as embryos um, mm-hmm. using CRISPR. Yes. And it's an incredibly, you know, it's been an incredibly uh, controversial, contentious uh, event. Um, and you know, we we have to decide now whether um, that's going to be the last time that anybody does that right. or. You know, maybe we'll, we'll say it's okay to do it on rare occasions to treat a certain class of diseases that no other way can treat. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, maybe maybe our ethics will shift and people will say, well, you know, it's not such a big deal to, to intervene in these ways. Um, and then, you know, who knows where that will take us. Right. The altering of us. That's a classic. Now... One thing I like to check on is you are very prolific in writing and creating. What is something looking onward through 2019? Um, I know the podcast has just come out along with that, that you are working on or have in mind. Um, well, um, I think, you know, I think now that the podcast is out, you know, I'm going to be, you know, uh, I, I'm going to be, you know, looking at, you know, po- new possible projects, whether maybe an- another kind of podcast mm-hmm. or the next book. I haven't really decided. Um, but, you know, fortunately, in the meantime, I got lots to keep me busy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm uh, writing my column for The New York Times. Um, and there it's 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 really great to be able to keep up with the sort of, you know, the week by week advances of science. Um, there's much more going on out there than I could ever write about. So um, oh. but it, but it is nice to be able to, you know, to dive in and, and explore different things, uh, you know, each week. 
That's wonderful. Now, how long, just to check, how long have you been writing for the New York Times and how do you like that? It's great. I mean, it's, uh, it's really, you know, it's hard to think of a better, um, uh, place to, to do the kind of thing I like to do, which is to write about science and, and serious scientific advances for a wide audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, the, the times, um, it has been fortunately making, um, great strides in, in figuring out a long-term strategy to survive as oh. a publication in this digital world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can reach a lot of people and, um, and they have they put serious support into their science team. There 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 are a lot of us who are writing about science at the times, uh, and um, and that kind of support means that we can go in a lot of uh, a lot of interesting directions and try out different things. My colleague Jim Gorman, he uh, does these magnificent videos um, that are mainly focused on just sort of animals in motion, and and uh, he. You know, every time he comes out with one, it's it's more gorgeous than the last, and and so you know, it's just it's it's a really great uh, a really great place to be. That's wonderful. This is great. It is nice to have a full set of items you're making or doing. If you're a creator, I I tell that sometimes to individuals that uh, you want to be in that flow and not let that go because there's a lot of efficiency and connectivity in that flow, and uh, when you're in it sometimes it's not so clear, oh, am I in it? But it's nice to continue that. I want to thank you for having been on this episode. I would recommend listeners to check out your podcast, What is Life? It's available online and I'll link to it. And then uh, I have uh, posted before about she has her mother's laugh, but I'll also link to that and people can check out your books as well. Great. Thanks for having me. Glad to. And we are out.